Dallas-based Club Corps, Inc. is proud to be a sponsor of Global IQ with The Economist. Since its founding in 1957, Club Corps has operated with the central purpose of building relationships and enriching the lives of its members, which goes beyond fine dining, golf, fitness, and social programs. Global IQ audiocasts ensure that our clubs meet the business, cultural, philanthropic, and intellectual needs of our members and the larger community. As the world leader in private clubs, Club Corps owns or operates a network of more than 150 clubs and resorts that incorporate more than 400,000 members and 14,000 dedicated employees. For more information, visit... Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and this morning we welcome Global IQ participants from around the world and across the country to our broadcast here from downtown Dallas. For 25 years, The Economist has released a collection of trends and predictions for the year ahead in a special publication known as The World In. And today we are very pleased to be speaking with Daniel Franklin, the executive editor of The Economist and an editor-in-chief of Economist.com on the latest in this series, The World in 2011. Throughout the broadcast, we invite you to submit questions for Daniel using the chat feature of the online forum. Please be sure to include your name and location. We also extend a special greeting to World Affairs Council and Dallas Business Club members, Economist subscribers, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Club Corps, the world leader in private clubs. We also welcome lawyers and clients from Jones Day who will join Texas Capital Bank as Global IQ sponsors in 2011. Our program would not be possible without the willingness of journalists from The Economist to participate and lend their valuable expertise. Now, if this is your first time tuning in, we encourage you to look for archives of Global IQ audiocast on iTunes and the Council's website, dfwworld.org. Now, during the program, you have the chance to raise your Global IQ and win prizes courtesy of The Economist by being the first to correctly answer one of three IQ challenge questions via the online chat. So stay tuned and listen carefully for opportunities to win. Daniel Franklin joined The Economist in 1983, and since then he has held titles including Europe Editor, Britain Editor, and Washington Bureau Chief. And since 2003, he has been the editor of the annual publication, The World In, and has served in his current position as executive editor of The Economist and editor-in-chief of Economist.com since 2006. Welcome back, Daniel. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, this year, you have suggested that the next 12 months will be a, a tale of two. Can you elaborate what you mean by this? Yes, well, uh, after I've been through um, all the the, the uh, articles that have come in, I, I sort of try to get a sense of you know what it, what strikes me from the uh, the collective impression of them all, and it, it it was just quite interesting that in so many areas there seemed to be uh, a clash of one sort or another. I, I guess that's very apparent in the context of the United States with what will be going on in, in Congress with uh, Republicans taking control of the House of Representatives. Uh, but I think it's also true internationally between, increasingly between America and an emerging China coming up not just as an economic power but also increasingly as a political force uh, in the world. And, and it's also true, I think, in the economy where we see a big divide between the emerging world that perhaps better described as the fast-growth world and a much slower-growing, uh, rich world. And, and you also see it in, in Europe. And just this morning I saw that Moody slashed Ireland's credit rating, and so in a sense you have this core of very strong or um, somewhat strong European countries surrounded at the periphery by some, some weaker ones. That's absolutely right, and you can even find it within individual countries. So as you point out, you can find it within a region, uh, uh, in Europe, I think, is the best example of that. But also, if you take a country like Australia, it, it's uh, what well, we describe it as a two-speed economy because part of Australia is plugged into the, uh, the China miracle, and then there's an, uh, an older uh, economy which is more akin to the rich world's growth. Um, so you can find that tension even within individual countries. 
No, I want to encourage everyone to, to read The World in 2011, and of course subscribers receive it, and we'll be giving a few copies away today. But one of the uh, articles I always look forward to is what were, your, what were your hits and what were your misses? Can you highlight some of those for us? Well, this is where um, I look every year and often rather shamefacedly at what we were predicting the previous year. Uh, and, of course, it's a reminder that um, e every time you attempt this kind of exercise, you're going to uh, miss a lot and you're going to get some things wrong. And the things that you miss um, inevitably are the big um, uh, uh, events that nobody could have seen coming, natural disasters and the like. So we, we could not predict or did not predict um, uh, uh, earthquakes in Haiti or floods in Pakistan or um, a volcano in, in uh, Iceland which disrupted air travel for so long. But then there are, there are other things that perhaps we should have seen coming, um, such as um, violent protests in, in uh, Thailand. Uh, and there are other things, events that we know are happening and we stick our neck out and say, here's what we think is going to happen and we don't always get them right. So we, we totally misread Polish politics, for example, in, in 2010. Um, and then there's the more, I suppose, nuanced cases where we got some right and some wrong. Um, I, on the whole, we, we had a pretty spot-on prediction of what would be happening in the U.S. midterms. Uh, but we didn't really emphasize the rise of the Tea Party, for example, which was one of the most intriguing and important uh, phenomena in, in American politics over the past year. And in Britain, we, we, we were absolutely spot on on the date of the election. Um, we, were, we were right that Gordon Brown would lose. We were right that um, someone called Miliband would replace him as Labour Party leader. We were right that David Cameron would be prime minister, but we didn't think it was going to be a coalition government, which is, of course, one of the most fascinating outcomes uh, of that particular election. So, uh, you know, some right, some wrong, perhaps on balance more right than wrong this year, um, probably more by luck than judgment. You know, I think your crystal ball is pretty good. Congratulations. But, you know, I, I am struck by just the impact that natural disasters had this year, and uh, I haven't really gone back and looked historically. Could you, you know, say that there were as many major ones in prior years? But I would also add to the list that you said, the uh, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Yes, absolutely. And then maybe that, more recently, that, WikiLeaks. Yep. I mean, I think WikiLeaks uh, is a... A phenomenon that is going to be, I think, not just through WikiLeaks itself, but the transparency of information, the ability to uh, to, to dump vast amounts of data uh, and make suddenly make them available, publish them to the to the whole world via the web. That is an extraordinary change, I think, and one we'll be adjusting to for some time to come. Um, I think it's an intriguing question you ask: Is there um, a greater frequency of natural disasters now? than in the past. And we, we have um, carried uh, articles that have predicted that there would be more and more of this because of uh, climate change and that there would be greater volatility of uh, extreme uh, climate conditions, extreme weather phenomena. So uh, we don't really have a, a vast run of data for this, but it's certainly something to watch out for in the longer term. You know, Daniel, we're going to be jumping around quite a bit today just by the, the, the nature of the, of the topic, and I'm going to ask you a question that Lisa Duncan just sent in, and it may uh, go back to the uh, changes in the in tax code that were announced yesterday or voted on yesterday. Lisa says or asks, what impact on the economy do you expect from the business tax provision allowing 100% deduction for equipment purchases in 2011? Um, well, that's a, it's a rather more specific than I'm, I've, I've been looking into in, the, in this volume, but I think um, in, if I could speak more generally to the point of business confidence in America, because I think it's absolutely vital, you know, there's uh, an awful lot of money sitting in, um, in, in uh, corporate America that if it was invested will make um, a huge difference to the, uh, to the economic outcome next year. So that's one of the great... Um, uh, variables, I think, in the year ahead. If, if some more confidence flows through business and, and encourages business to invest, uh, then the outlook could be very, could turn out to be much brighter than, than many people are suspecting up until now. Uh, I, I also think that it's interesting that you've seen of late the, the economic um, forecasts for the United States nudging upwards. Um, and we actually, in the world in 2011, had a, an internal tension in this. We weren't entirely 
consistent, we were open about it, but not consistent, that we had a forecast from my colleagues at the Economist Intelligence Unit, which is our forecasting announcement, uh, forecasting uh, operation that uh, that uh, produces a lot of data for, for, for this volume. And then we had a piece by um, our Washington economics correspondent, Greg Ipp, and Greg was a lot more optimistic, uh, or a lot less pessimistic, shall we say, about the outlook for the U.S. economy than the EIU was. So um, I, we'll, we'll see who's right. But I think what, we're, what we've been witnessing of late is a edging up of the expectations for growth in America. You know, Greg was on our program about uh, two months ago, and of course he's the author of the Little Book of Economics, which yep. is available on our website. Do, do you recall what he uh, projected for the um, growth in the United States, and well, how was, different was it? Yeah, he was projecting three um, percent plus growth, which um, now is is just uh, um, you know starting to appear to be um, more or less what the mainstream is starting to expect, and. Uh, uh, you know, I think there's every chance that, um, you know, only, only a little bit has to go right and America starts to grow uh, quite a bit faster than, than people have been uh, forecasting until until relatively recently. So it's still fragile, but um, I think we're, confidence is vital. And uh, if there is starts to be a little bit more business confidence in America, then the momentum builds up quite quickly. What did the EIU uh, forecast then for growth? Um, well, when they, they've actually recently revised up their forecast too, but at the time they were they were really quite uh, gloomy and below two percent growth was what they were looking at. Unemployment, of course, seems to be a, a major challenge for the United States, still hovering around ten percent. Did you all have some disagreement on uh, internal tension on, on that as yeah. well? And well, I, I think um, the, the outlook isn't great, uh, and what's particularly concerning is is the those who are long-term unemployed, because that's such a, an awfully uh, damaging thing, a devastating thing. Um, and, and the crucial thing is, is not just how fast the jobs come back, but also how much of that unemployment is um, entirely due to the economic cycle and how much has become structural. You know, one expects the great American job machine to kick into, into action and to start generating jobs very rapidly. Uh, but there is a worry that, there, that, that some of the unemployment may be a bit stickier than it has been in previous cycles, and partly because of the perhaps the mismatch between um, where the jobs are in future and what the, what the skill sets are and, and where people are. That there's some uh, fears that because of the troubles in the housing market, the fact that m so many uh, mortgages are underwater, that uh, the American workers aren't as mobile as they once were. They can't just up sticks and leave as, as readily as they could in the past. Well, and one of your projections, I think, concerned China. Maybe this would be a good time for you to share with us some of your predictions for, for China. Uh, well, China is, is it, by contrast, is growing very fast, almost too fast for, for, the, chi for the comfort of Chinese uh, government, they're worried about inflation, so they're, if anything, gently putting the foot on the on the brakes. Uh, but China is still going to be growing very rapidly in May, uh, even in, in 2011, overtake the United States as the world's biggest manufacturer. That would be ending a 110-year run for America in that position. And by other measures, too, you'll, you'll probably see China um, emerging as, as the as a very, very big, forceful economic power. Um, probably it could well be the, the world's leading publisher of patents in, um, in, in 2011, um, which shows that China isn't just a, a, a big manufacturer, a big producer of, uh, of goods. It's also an emerging scientific power as well, although I think there's a caveat to that, which is the quality of some of those Chinese patents is, is questionable, and they, there are certainly incentives for... Chinese uh, to firms in particular to crank out the patents, um, even if they're not perhaps um, the most valuable patents in the world. Hmm. And so, and isn't it in 2011 China will announce its next five-year plan and they're putting so much emphasis on innovation? Uh, well, they're, they're putting emphasis on innovation, on um, also on energy, uh, on the energy sphere, and they, they have enormous needs there, but they're also wanting to be a world leader in 
for example, electric cars, so they're cranking out production of that. Um, almost any sector you care to look at now, China is going to be a, a key player. Daniel, that was a, a fascinating article about what China and Israel will teach the world. Do you recall that, and could you elaborate a bit more on it, because you, you just mentioned the electric cars? Yes, well, this is from Shai Gassi, who's the head of Better Place company, and um, he is his company is starting to um, implement a very innovative um, uh, system in, in Israel where uh, cars don't run on petrol, they run on batteries, and the, instead of charging your battery at home, you change your battery at a, at a, a battery station. So instead of filling up with petrol, you, um, you get a new battery, and, and there's therefore a whole different ecosystem of motoring that is being experimented with. Now, that's an experiment that I think will be watched very closely, and there'll be questions as to whether you can do such a thing in a country that is um, bigger than, than, than Israel is. It's obviously being experimented in a, in a small country, but nevertheless very interesting. And then in China, um, there are, as I mentioned, these very ambitious plans for developing um, electric cars, and, and there's a, a concern in China about um, you know, if, you, if you expand um, motoring uh, as much as seems likely, uh, the impact on that and the fuel consumption consequences of that are so great that they ha there's a great interest in finding alternative ways of, of powering motor vehicles. And I was struck in the article, uh, Agassi says, quote, when China decides they are going to do something, they will do it. And then also President Shimon Peres of Israel says that Israel now has a national goal to become completely free of petroleum by 2010, which could really change sort of the outlook in the Middle East. Uh, well, it doesn't mean, of course, that the oil producers will suddenly have nowhere to sell their oil because they don't sell it uh, really to, to Israel. They sell it to the rest of the world. Um, but uh, so the strategic question is not, balance isn't entirely changed by that. But I think it's, in, it's important that you see um, major efforts, and not just in Israel and China. I think it's the year of the electric car in many ways elsewhere as well with models from the mainstream manufacturers uh, coming onto the market. Um, you see the beginnings of um, serious alternatives to petrol as a means of um, as, as a means of, of powering of fueling the auto sector. I want to talk uh, in a few minutes about John Parker's article on the world's population, but it sort of sets the stage for our first challenge question. So let me read that. And remember, if you're the first person to send in the correct answer, you'll receive a the World in 2011 publication or the 2011 wall calendar. According to John Parker, the world's population will reach 7 billion by the end of 2011. What does he predict the 2050 population to be? Is it 8.9 billion? 7.5 billion or 9.2 billion? So just send in the correct answer and we'll be sure that you get a copy of the world in 2011. Daniel, we have two good questions here uh, concerning the euro. Uh, and I'll read them both because I think you can, can address them together. Uh, Buddy Teaster asked, can you talk about the future of the euro given the financial stresses in southern Europe and Ireland and what would the impact be on the United States? And then William Stedding asks, what is your outlook on the future of the euro as a regional common currency, and what does the history of the euro portend for additional regional common currencies in other parts of the world? Well, Thanks it, for it, those questions. Yeah, very good questions. I think what, has, what we've seen recently is that um, a breakup of the euro, which was once you know, hardly imaginable, is suddenly no longer unthinkable, at least. I don't think it's likely in 2011, uh, but it's certainly not unimaginable. Um, why, is it not, why is it not likely? Partly because the politics are such that there's been such an investment, uh, political investment in the common currency that to see it unravel would be devastating, not just potentially for the countries that were uh, leaving the euro, but for the whole European project. Uh, and so you, I think you will see um, the main European countries really going to great lengths to try to prevent that from happening. And economically, if you look at it in detail, what would have to happen for the euro to break up, um, it's really very costly, and the details of suddenly uh, undoing, unstitching this thing 
um, look ghastly. So it doesn't mean it can't happen because currency unions have come apart before, but it means that it's very costly for it to happen. It's not a panacea suddenly that with one bound you're free from all the, all the difficulties that have gone before. Uh, nevertheless, there is this big gap that we were talking about earlier between the core European countries that are actually doing not too badly, France and Germany in, uh, in particular, and the peripheral smaller countries, Greece, Ireland, Portugal, that have struggled. And the, the real uh, test of all this will be in the bigger peripheral countries, such as Spain, even Italy, uh, which is getting into the heartland, but they have uh, you know, big debts. Uh, if, if they get into serious trouble, then, then all bets are off. What type of process is available to disband the currency? Well, it's not envisaged. If you signed up, you supposedly signed up for good. So uh, partly um, even imagining it, even setting out a procedure for it to happen would make it more likely to happen. So that's something that the, uh, the, the members of the euro would be very reluctant to do. But more imaginable, I think, is that there are procedures for a country that gets into serious financial difficulties to restructure its debts while remaining part of the European of the single currency. So you might see, um, in what would amount to a default but wouldn't be called a default, um, happening while without a breakup of the single currency. You know, last year when we spoke, we talked a lot about the jobless recovery, and it now seems that the United States and the U.K. are, are taking different approaches to, to jog their employment. Um, as you mentioned, of course, the coalition government, which was unexpected and has placed you know, major, major emphasis on spending cuts. And the, at least at this point in the United States, spending seems to be relatively untouched with more emphasis on, on, on tax policy and uh, an aggressive uh, monetary policy by the Federal Reserve. Um, do you have any sense of which may be the most successful? And, and how is what we're doing in the United States being reported in the UK? Well, there isn't necessarily one size fits all for the right policy in particular circumstances. I, I think in the case of the United Kingdom, uh, the, the country's finances had really risked spiraling out of control and therefore to avoid some of the problems that we've seen elsewhere in the euro area um, or elsewhere in Europe, Britain is outside the euro area, um, it, it, it was, there were strong incentives to take corrective um, action and to, to cut, um, tackle the budget deficit quite vigorously. It, what's happening, which is rather interesting, is that this government, this coalition, is not only doing that, it seems to be taking the opportunity to, trans to, to reform quite fundamentally a lot of the sectors of public life. So it's turning out to be a surprisingly radical government as well as, as tackling the budget deficit. America's in a rather different position because it, it, it is, of course, a much bigger um, economy, much more important to, to the wider world. It's uh, the biggest economy in the world by far. Um, and it has the ability, because it's uh, the world's reserve currency, to, to instill, to um, stimulate its economy more. Um, but it can't go on forever doing so. And I think what one would like to see in the United States is a, is a credible medium-term plan for bringing the country's finances under control. You know, John Micklefite, your editor-in-chief, wrote a, a very interesting piece and, and said that perhaps in 2011, this may be when governments really begin to, in, quote, in quotes, rethink what is needed to put their fiscal houses in order. And in some of the other pieces that were in, the, in your publication, there was this emphasis on the more responsibility on the individual, perhaps decentralizing some of the policies could you comment a little bit on, on this? Uh, well, I, I, that's why um, it plays, I suppose, to what I was talking about just a moment ago, that uh, why this government in Britain is, is, I think, one that the rest of the world might look at with some interest, because it is being quite radical in not just cutting a, bu a budget deficit, but um, doing so in a way that rethinks the role of the state and, indeed, the balance between what the state does and what the individuals do, uh, it talks a lot about something called what, what David Cameron calls the big society. It's not a phrase that really resonates or is caught on, 
but it does reflect, I think, some um, some serious thinking about the relative responsibilities of individuals and the state, and that individuals, uh, citizens, need to contribute more, take more power into their own hands, uh, and that the state has, at least in, in Britain, but I think the same could be said in, in quite a number of other countries, um, has, has got um, rather too bloated in various ways. Uh, and so you've seen, in the case of the United Kingdom, a, a very quick and quite fundamental reform of welfare, uh, of defense policy, um, health policy, more or less, you name it, um, there are radical moves afoot. Adriana Huffington certainly wrote, a, a, I think, a piece that will be viewed somewhat controversially. And, you know, when I first read it, I thought it was Lou Dobbs, the way she was saying that the uh, middle class was under assault. Uh, but she said, America risked turning into a third world nation. And she asked, will the American people stand up and take responsibility for rebuilding their communities? Yes, it's almost a, um, almost a, a, a Tea Party idea, I suppose you could say in some ways, that there has to be a, a taking of responsibility, taking back of responsibility from um, citizens and voters, um, because government doesn't seem to be able to, to solve it, uh, and a sense of really um, exasperation with the inability of government to tackle the big problems that, that a country faces. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that you find the same sort of uh, Impetus, same sort of instinct coming in from, from, from different parts of the political spectrum. Do you think, you know, given that, that in the United States there may be a greater likelihood of a, a legitimate third party or a, a challenge from, from the left? I, I think there's a, a possibility that there will be a, a third party candidacy. It's always extremely difficult, uh, as, as you know, um, for a third-party candidate to make a big impact in America, although you know Ross Perot was the last one who did, and he got I think it was about 19% of the vote, didn't he? That's and right. Yeah, sure did. Um, so it's not insignificant, and it can of, of course influence the outcome. I mean, you could imagine a um, let's say a Bloomberg candidacy or, or some um, some new uh, challenge emerging that might be might be credible. But it's a, it's a very tall order to do it outside of the two major parties. And, of course, they don't stand still. Uh, you know, it may well be that um, President Obama moves towards the center because of the new reality in, in Congress. And, yes, that in doing so, he may stimulate more gossip about a challenge from the left. Mm -hmm. Let me congratulate Ricardo Isais. Uh, Ricardo guessed correctly that the prediction for the world's population in 2050 is 8.9 billion. Congratulations, Ricardo. You know, I, I did think that was an interesting piece, too, about the 7th billion person. Um, it doesn't seem that long ago that the 6th billionth was born. So well, it wasn't that long ago. There. <laughs> it was only about a dozen years ago. Uh, and then you have to compare that with, the, you know, how long it took the world to reach its first billion in about 1800, which was about 250,000 years. So you can see that uh, the successive billions have come faster and faster. Um, and that will, I think, create um, plenty of, of uh, reflection, thought, and, and no doubt alarm bells about how the world can live with so many people, um, whether... It will be able to feed itself, whether the, the raw materials and scarce resources can be used responsibly enough to support a population of 7 billion and growing, and then up, as you say, to nearly, well, to around 9 billion probably by around the middle of the century, when it's likely to stabilize and, and birth rates are coming down. It takes a while to work, work its way through, but uh, by around mid-century, then the population should be more or less stable. Right, because I think what John was pointing out is that as family size decreases, it takes a while, but then slowly the population um, will growth will begin to slow down. That, that's right, and you you do see that happening in some countries already. So Japan's population is shrinking, um, and some European countries are seeing their populations stabilize and probably set to shrink, and and aging is, at the same time, and that that carries its own. Uh, challenges. Uh, the United States has a rather different profile. Um, uh, birth rates are still higher and the population is still growing quite strongly. 
But overall, globally, the trend is to have smaller family sizes, and for the 2.1 children per woman is the the um, rate at which the population stabilizes, and uh, you know the global population will reach that uh, global. Um, fertility rate will reach that, uh, and then the, the world eventually the world's population will 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 hold steady. We have about a, another 25 minutes or so, so why don't we talk a bit about President uh, Obama and a bit more focus on the United States? Um, I suspect he reads this, and last year he probably wasn't real happy to see that you described 2010 would be a miserable year for him. Um, what is the adjective you're going to use to describe uh, uh, President Obama's uh, administration this year or next year? Um, well, I think uh, creative, at least that's what it'll have to be because it's facing this new situation in Congress. And one thinks naturally back to what happened in uh, 1994 when the Republicans last uh, stormed back into power under Newt Gingrich, and then there was a new dynamic in Washington. I was um, in Washington at the time covering it, and it was fascinating to watch. And then, as we know, um, uh, you know it was a surprising success, really, for President Clinton. He, he uh, managed to get a certain amount of business done with the Republicans against what many people would have expected. And then he, he won very easily um, in the subsequent presidential election. I think it'll be harder for, for a number of reasons for President Obama to um, be quite as, as successful as, as President Clinton was. Um, I think the, the hostilities within Washington are that much deeper. The uh, economy is in a more difficult phase. Um, but, you know, I think it's perfectly possible, and I think he will... Um, be adjusting to the new realities, and therefore there's probably scope for some surprises uh, along the way. Let me ask you to comment on this. When in the in the first months of the administration, there was a a lot of maybe it's the overused word hope about the uh, president's administration and his ability to affect some foreign events. Do you feel that President Obama has, in, in the United States has lost in the last year some of its ability to influence events? And um, you know, I'm thinking about the the START Treaty and the delay with the ratification of the uh, free trade agreement with South Korea. Yes, I think some of the magic has worn off, but it was inevitable that that would happen, I suppose, both at home and abroad. The, the expectations were so high that um, there was bound to be a degree of disillusionment setting in, and um, that's what we've seen. Uh, and abroad, I think there was a time when you know everybody wanted to come to Washington, have their photograph taken with President Obama. Uh, it's a bit less... Uh, obvious now, um, he, but nevertheless, I, I think that a president's thoughts, when things are difficult at home, do naturally turn to abroad, uh, and so diplomacy will probably be, be taking up quite a bit of the president's time. Um, Chuck asks, Chuck Neuenschwander from Dallas asks, do we in the United States have any legitimate reason to be confident that Congress will solve the budget imbalance problem? Um, no, I think is the short answer to that. Uh, it would be quite wrong to be confident because all the evidence so far seems to point to the contrary. What, what I would say, I mean, I would dif differentiate between the short-term problem and the longer-term problem because um, the short-term problem, it is possible if the economy starts to uh, grow quickly again um, that quite quickly things start to look very different. And that's what happened uh, in the 1990s when there was all this talk about you know, how long is it going to take to balance the budget. And actually it happened very quickly, sooner than everybody expected because the economy started growing faster than everybody expected and revenues poured in. Poured in. The longer-term issue or the medium to long-term issue is much more serious. It's all these um, uh, commitments on pensions and on health care that are going to mount up as the population ages and more people retire and the burden on health care becomes greater, um, that if you look at the numbers there, uh, things look very grim unless some corrective action is taken. And that's what, I guess, um, you know, the various uh, commissions have been looking at and whether there's really an appetite politically to take the bold moves that would be needed to address that is questionable.
and awfully difficult to do that when you're beginning to get closer to 2012 and the presidential election. Yes, there may be. You'd think there would be a window in 2011 before uh, before uh, things get really tied up in the presidential campaign. I'm afraid not. I was looking this, when I was reading the paper this morning. I saw already that they practically have a full schedule of debates for the uh, for, for the primaries. Well, it, it happens earlier and earlier, and certainly the midterms are in a sense the starting gun for uh, for the for the next presidential election. Certainly, you'd expect to see the Republican race um, warming up, and um, many more would-be presidents thinking that that's something worth having a shot at. So how do you handicap the would-be president? You have an article in the issue about that as well. Uh, well, there's a very good piece by John Heileman, who uh, wrote a fantastic book about the, the last uh, race for the White House. Um, the one I, I think everybody's going to be looking at is, of course, Sarah Palin, um, whether or not she will decide to run or not, and she might do so. She might have the luxury, because her name recognition is such, of um, not having to do so terribly early. She will, come what may, have a great influence on the, on the Republican side. So, uh, you know, beyond that, um, there, there are, I suppose, the, um, you know, the, the, there are a lot of obvious candidates, but I, I guess what I would be intrigued to see is whether somebody who we're not really looking at at the moment emerges as a surprise, uh, a surprise candidate, because um, Mitt Romney is, I suppose, of the of the existing crop, having done um, been in effect runner-up last time round for the Republican uh, nomination. He will he he starts out in front, but uh, there are many more who would like to overtake him. And I suppose there'd also be some eyes on whether another Bush could have a go. Jeb Bush, who said I think he's uh, said he's not not interested, but you know there might be pressure on him to run. Sure. Well, you know, we tend to be a little myopic here and look just at our own shores and our elections. What are some of the other elections and change in governments that are going to take place uh, next year? It's actually not a huge year for elections because um, 2012 is going to be a, a, a bigger year for elections than the United, Nation, United States itself, uh, of course. But there are quite a few in, in Latin America. Um, Argentina will be one to look at. Um, I think, with interest, one of the major economies there. Um, also, in Latin America, it'll be in January that Dilma Rousseff takes over as having won the election um, to succeed uh, President Lula, who's stepping down, and she was his chief of staff. So I think there'll be a lot of attention on her and how she does filling those rather large shoes of, um, of, of, of Lula. Um, and, and then in Africa, I think, some, uh, some interesting contests in Nigeria and elsewhere. Uh, let's go and ask our second challenge question before we start uh, talking about some of the notable anniversaries. And, and this one is, uh, there are a number of important dates in 2011 and anniversaries. Which one of these is correct? King James Version of the Bible turns 400. The Peace Corps celebrates 45 years of volunteer work or the Convention of the Wetlands, signed by 160 countries, marks its 35th anniversary of adoption. Uh, send in the correct answer, and you'll receive a copy of the Economist calendar, wall calendar. Daniel, you have so many interesting articles in here. How do you decide who to solicit articles and, and pieces from, and when do you decide to do that? Uh, well, there are, uh, there are two types of articles we solicit. One is the the pieces that we ask for internally from uh, from our own journalists, and then secondly, for the people we commission from outside. The process really starts in a rather um, English way with an editorial tea in the spring. Um, so you could say the crucial ingredient is chocolate eclairs to get the, <laughs> the brains working. Uh, and uh, that's actually always a very interesting discussion. It, it, you start to peer over the horizon and see, you know, what's coming up, what's uh, What's, what are going to be the big ideas of the uh, next year to 18 months? So that gives a sort of first draft of the sorts of things we might want to look at. And we also discuss then who might it by, be interesting to invite, who's, um, who's new in office or who's newly prominent, who in the world of business is doing interesting things or uh, who in the world of the arts is, uh, is, is, might have um, something new and, and fresh to say. So uh, it, it, uh, I have a, a few months to 
um, relax and not worry about this, but then it pretty soon gets going again and we'll be turning our focus on 2012. There were two articles, one by Secretary Clinton and the other by Radek Sigorski, Poland's foreign minister, that I found particularly intriguing, and I wonder if you might comment on both of those. Uh, well, it's, it's really, I suppose, a, a common denominator in, in, in them is, is leadership and who, um, who leads and, and how. Um, Secretary Clinton is talking about America continuing to lead, but in a rather uh, different and cooperating way, cooperative way than in the past. Uh, and Radek Sikorski, I think Poland is a particularly interesting. He's the Polish foreign minister. Poland will be in the presidency of the European Union in the second half of 2011, uh, and Poland has, has sort of emerged as a, a self-confident and more important player in, in Europe than in the past. It, it didn't have a recession, unlike most other uh, European economies, and it, it's forging a sort of new relationship with, with Russia, um, a more cooperative one than in the past. That, so it's become a, a pivotal country uh, in Europe, a largish country at the heartland of Europe that uh, has intriguing relations both with the EU, of which it's a member, with Germany, and towards the east um, with Russia. But he also really gave sort of a, sh a sharp warning about Russia, I felt. Uh, well, I, I think what he says about Russia is intriguing. He, he's saying that actually uh, Russia is Russia's long-term interests are going to lie more fundamentally with the West than many people, including many Russians, currently realize because of the big challenges Russia will face to the East with the rise of China. Uh, and that seems to inform a, a, a bit of a rethink in Poland about um, how much of a partner Russia is likely to be in, in the future. It's more of a, a sense of common interest with Russia in, in, uh, in, when you survey the, the, the landscape of power than perhaps might have been obvious to many um, in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War. Um, I want to congratulate Doug Johnson. He guessed correctly, or knew correctly, the answer that in 2011 the King James Version of the Bible turns 400. And there are going to be a lot of events taking place around that date, aren't there? Yes, it's one of those great cultural excuses for a great set of cultural festivities, many celebrations in, uh, in America, actually. I think there are going to be uh, many events, and in Britain there'll be BBC documentaries and uh, university seminars, and I think a special edition of the, of the King James Bible, uh, one of the world's great bestsellers. And I think one of the first events is actually going to be at, uh, at, at, in Houston, at Houston Baptist University, if I remember correctly. It, it was actually on, a, I believe, a King James Version. I think it was Lincoln's version of the Bible that uh, uh, President Obama uh, took his oath of office. Hmm. You know, Africa seems to be uh, the continent that next year is going to get a lot more attention. There will be a number of elections, um, and, and there's going to be a, a major referendum as well. Uh, well, the, the, one that, uh, the one that all eyes will be on in January is Sudan, um, which where the South votes on um, independence um, very early on January the 9th. And the question of whether that vote, um, first of all, goes ahead. There are some, uh, some concerns that it might not actually be allowed to go ahead, but assuming it does go ahead, um, whether, as most people expect, the, uh, the South votes for independence, whether that process will be allowed to happen smoothly and, and without, without violence. There's a, um, a section in the magazine, Anniversaries and Birthdays. Um, there are going to be two that we know of very important weddings that are going to take place. Yes, well, we had um, uh, certainly, we, we, we said we had a section called Just Possibly of events that might just happen but, um, but might, may not, and this was before the announcement, uh, we went to press before the announcement of the, the royal wedding uh, uh -huh. in Britain. So that is going ahead and will, I think, um, create a lot of interest around the world. Uh, Republicans who don't think that it's anything terribly much to get excited about, I think, will probably feel disappointed that it will nevertheless eat up 
um, enormous amounts of media attention. Well, it'll be a good injection of cash, I'm sure, into Britain's economy as Americans go there. <laughs> yes. And there's also another royal wedding. I think Prince Albert in Monaco is going to get married later in the year. Uh, yes, well, that's um, something that has the Monaco, the Monaco has been waiting for for a long time, but it's finally happening. And then the first of the baby boomers will reach age 65. Well, this is, uh, I suppose, it, it's relevant to what we were talking about a moment ago, where we were talking about the aging of the population, these uh, uh, generations starting to reach retirement, uh, and the question is, what sort of retirement will they have? It's probably not quite the retirement that they, many of them were imagining even a short while ago, because their retirement uh, kitty is not as, as full as, it, as they would have imagined. Uh, and so there'll be a lot of questions about how long they can continue in work, what sort of active retirement they uh, they have, and they might not be uh, ready to, to 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 put up their feet quite yet. And then you also put in the magazine, the UN predicts that between now and 2050, the ratio of retired people to working people will decrease from four for each pensioner to only about two. Yeah, so this is something, I mean, Japan is the most extreme example among the rich countries of where the, the, the place is, is aging very rapidly. We had a, a whole special report on this just a couple of weeks ago, which made fascinating uh, reading. Uh, and the, this is a huge adjustment, and um, I think there will be, it will bring with it perhaps changing attitudes to, um, to, to, to this period of life and to the sort of the, the the way it will be lived, the participation in the workforce, the sorts of a lot of creativity, no doubt, in the sorts of um, services that are made available um, to the elderly, uh, but also you know the meaning of the word uh, elderly changes because people lead much more active lives to a much later to a much later age. Yeah, you know, I'd like to go back because it's a new section, I believe, this year, that just possibly, um, because some of them have, have already occurred. Uh, one was that uh, um, Aung San Suu Kyi would be released from, uh, from house arrest. Uh, others that you have suggested that might possibly happen, other events. Saudi Arabia faces a succession crisis following the death of King Abdullah or a European country legalizes the sale of narcotic drugs, including heroin. What were some of the other just possibilities that we might be on the lookout for? Uh, well, one of them was uh, run on the, uh, uh, on the pound. Uh, another was uh, which some companies might think that they've been experiencing in the wake of the WikiLeaks affair that uh, uh, cyber terrorism brings down the Internet. So... Um, you don't necessarily want these just possibilies to happen. They're a mixed bag of, uh, of uh, things that you might be pleased to see, such as the release of Aung San Suu Kyi, which has happened, and again happened after we went to press, uh, and things that you certainly wouldn't want to see. Dagmar Fleming asks, who will be the economic tigers of 2011 besides China, and do you foresee the continued rise of BRIC countries, and are there any other emerging economies to watch? We sort of touched on the last one, but maybe you could comment a bit more about the continued rise of the BRIC countries and if Russia should still be included there. Yes, it's a great question. Now, one of the possibilities of 2011 is actually that India might nudge ahead of China in, in, in its economic growth uh, as China slows and India continues to to surge. Um, and if that happens, it would actually be a sign of things to come because uh, in, in over the coming years, um, one would certainly expect that China's growth would start to slow somewhat um, and that India, because it has a more um, uh, rapidly growing working age population, whereas China's will, start, will be starting to shrink um, and India is by now considerably poorer and so has more scope for catch-up growth of productivity, uh, you, you probably start to see India consistently outgrowing China, China and next year could be a year where that, uh, that starts to happen. Um, beyond that, I think, yes, the BRICS, uh, you know, it was a great marketing ploy to, which, which came from Goldman Sachs uh, to have Brazil, Russia, India, China. Russia was always, I think, a bit of the, the odd man out. It's, it's not a uh, country with a quickly growing um, population and it's very much a, 
um, resource, natural resource-dependent um, economy, perhaps it would have been better to have had Indonesia in there rather than Russia, but Bikki doesn't sound quite as good. And I think in, in actually more seriously in the year ahead that many businesses and other uh, observers will be looking to the emerging emerging markets, the new frontiers of emerging markets beyond the BRICS, many of them in Africa, as I was mentioning, but also places like um, Bangladesh, Pakistan, not easy markets to do business in, but nevertheless potentially offering very high growth. Very good. Uh, our last trivia challenge question for 2010 uh, is, is this, and it's sort of like Daniel, you and I were talking earlier about how much we like our iPads, but uh, what well-loved technology will no longer be produced after 2011? Is it Polaroid's Polaroid camera, floppy disk, or Sony Walkman's audio cassette players? Send in the correct answer. Be the first to do that, and you'll receive a copy of the 2011 wall calendar. Speaking of technology, um, just recently The Economist uh, revised its iPad, its app where you can now download the magazine in its entirety and, and keep it in, arch in archives. What else do you have in store for us in, in 2011? Uh, well, we'll continue to, to develop those, those apps, and that's, a, I mean, not just for us, but for others as well. I think the new platforms, particularly the e-readers, are very intriguing um, and, and probably increasingly important um, platforms and distribution mechanisms for, for content. Uh, what I think you will increasingly see is um, experimentation with new business models. We recently uh, tweaked the way that we uh, charge for content on, on the web, online, um, and in many ways 2011 will be, I think, the year of the paywall where many publishers start to meter in some shape or form uh, their content so that online so that it's no longer if it, if it was before free and by meter you mean like what the financial times does um, yes exactly that you you're allowed to have perhaps a certain amount free um, and then beyond a point you start to get asked to be to pay for it and you can twiddle that dial to some extent to to um, make the most sense commercially and you know when you touched on this in in the, in your article, um, how you can tweak it according to which countries or what the issue is, um, it'll be a, a little bit like how movies and movie theaters charge for their tickets. Yes, there's a, a degree of differentiation and possible, and also experimentation to see what works. And you never quite know until you actually do it what the response is going to be. Um, at the same time, I think many publishers are finding that the response to um, iPad or iPhone editions are, um, are very positive, and you'll see a lot of a lot more development there, a lot more creativity. You're seeing a lot more authors bypassing publishing houses. Do you think this is going to continue? And, and, and what does it really mean for some of the big big publishers? I think it's a challenge to some of the big publishers, and they, they it really throws down the gauntlet to them to um, prove that uh, you know they are. Um, vital to the to the um, uh, system uh, and they do have things of course that they uh, they contribute that self-publishing doesn't they they act as a quality control um, they uh, tell readers that they think that the particular book is is worthy of publication and they can put their throw their marketing muscle behind it they can also um, put some editing resources behind it, which is often uh, rather needed, that uh, mm -hmm. people who pub self-publish may not be the best edited works around. And it's, of course, harder for someone who's self-publishing who hasn't already made their name uh, to get heard above the, the mass of information that's available. So I think publishers still have um, an important place, but there are other ways to, to rise to prominence as well. Uh, and it will make publishers have to work that much harder. Well, it will be very interesting to follow. I, as, as you reported, Apple will continue to maintain the largest percentage of the tablets that are sold, and they'll probably sell, I think you projected, close to $30 million in 2011, which is just phenomenal. Uh, but it faces competition again there. The BlackBerry and others will be introducing their version of the tablet computer, so it's... Uh, 
it's going to be a very vibrant market, which is good news for consumers. And I think we'll also see perhaps uh, prices come down as uh, others, Google and others, come in with book offerings. Um, so great variety, perhaps uh, confusing to some because there's, there'll be more and more choice, but, uh, but, but a, a good thing because consumers will be able to um, decide what they particularly like and, and follow um, what works best for them. But, Daniel, one thing that consumers will not be able to buy, as Jesse Hernstein and a few others told us, the Sony Walkman will no longer be produced after 2011. Not in Japan. That's in the heartland of it. And it, it's extraordinary when you think that uh, it doesn't seem all that long ago to, to me anyway that this mm -hmm. was the latest hot gadget. And now, uh, you know, it seems like a bit of uh, industrial history, really, uh, replaced by newer music machines. And um, it just shows you how fast innovation happens these days. Exactly. Well, before we start talking about the world in 2036, George McLaughlin asks, what's your prediction about the level of economic activity by the wealthy that will result from the extension of the tax cuts? Well, uh, the, the, uh, I suppose for the sake of the um, economic cycle at the moment in America, um, it, might, it wasn't the best time to start uh, taxing more heavily you want. Um, you want uh, the economy to, to get going again and to get going with more solidity. So um, I, I think this is something that we at The Economist have certainly wanted to see extended, that this was not the right time to, to start um, hitting Americans with, with more taxes. But um, whether, whether that uh, happens with um, with creates real consumer confidence, I think that remains to be seen because we haven't really got a sense yet of momentum and dynamism building up in the American economy. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if going forward one year was not challenging enough, you've decided to look at the world in 2036. Uh, could you tell us some of the highlights? Uh, I know that Usain Bolt says that it's possible that the man, a man may break nine seconds for the 100 meters. Yeah, well, I just explained why we did this, because, as you said at the beginning, it's the 25th anniversary of this publication. Um, it seemed a nice excuse to look 25 years forward as well. Uh, and what you can do is, is have a bit of a leap of the imagination and uh, free yourself from today's constraints. Um, you, you don't expect these to be entirely accurate, but it's, at the very least, it's interesting. Uh, and we have... Uh, predictions, for example, that time might be right for a, a new major religion. Uh, the circumstances might be uh, propitious for that. Um, that uh, the uh, well, look forward to long-range economic forecasting of the date at which America might be overtaken by China as the biggest economy in the world. And Jim O'Neill, who was the person who, who coined the, the phrase uh, BRICS at Goldman Sachs, uh, predicts that that might happen in 2027. Well, it really does make fascinating reading. Mark Pincus, the founder and CEO of Zigna, uh, tells us that we may have 500 social relationships in 2036 against what is the average of 125. I never thought about that before. Yes, and this whole business of uh, uh, new social networks inspires a lot of the longer-term thinking, thinking that the collaboration of one way or another will change the way that the world works and that will change possibly the way that, that uh, institutions work, that states work even, and certainly that companies work. And we have some uh, interesting speculation about the organizations of 2036 as well. Well, Daniel, I just want to thank you for spending time with us this morning and again congratulate you because uh, uh, having read most of this, The World in 2011, there's so many, we, we've covered a lot this morning, but there's a lot that we did not cover and, and there's a number of articles and you have the section The World in Figures and then a great deal of detail on the uh, uh, various uh, industries. And so I hope that all of our listeners will, if they are not yet subscribers, will, will go out and become subscribers and, of course, pick up a copy of The World in 2011. Thank, Thank you very, much. very much for being with us. Thank you. I want pleasure. to 
I want to remind our audience, if you're not already a subscriber, please do go to TheEconomist.com to start a subscription today. What a perfect last-minute holiday gift. Also, please visit DFWWorld.org forward slash Global IQ to sign up for the latest updates and information on our program. There you can also register for our program on January 21st, where we'll be focusing on The Economist's special report, Davos Global Leaders, with the publication's business editor, Robert Guest. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Club Corps. And remember, together The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world. And from all of us, happy 1111.